to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. My hope is to preach a small series of sermons from Ephesians 6 about the Christian warfare, putting on the spiritual armor that God gives to us. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith 
from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. The text that we consider is verses 10-13. through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the loud and clear demand that the world places upon its citizens is that you must love. Regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of whether you worship Jehovah or you worship Allah, regardless of whether you are attracted to someone of the opposite gender, or if you are attracted to someone of the same gender, the duty, according to the world, is love. And what do they mean by love? Tolerate. Accept those who are different than you. Forbidden by the world is hate. In fact, if you become guilty of what is called hate speech, you best be prepared to take the consequences of that, which could include even a form of imprisonment. Love, don't hate. But what says God's Word? Is the calling of the world consistent with the instruction given in the Word of the Lord? Some might be able to make the case that there is some concurrence between the instruction of the world and the instruction of God's Word because both of them have as their core requirement love. Just as the world calls of its citizens to love one another, so the great commandment that Jesus Christ gave to His disciples is love God and love the neighbor as thyself. Recognizing that there seems to be some level of overlap, 
between the requirement of the world and the requirement of God's Word, we must go further. What the world requires is not love at all. What the world has done is divorced love from holiness. God's Word never separates love and holiness. What happens when holiness comes into contact with unholiness? What happens when light comes into contact with darkness? The Word of God in that situation is not love, but the Word of God ever since Genesis 3 verse 15 is enmity. I will place enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman between thy seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. What happens when you encounter the wicked world? God has put you as part of the church militant. We've been given spiritual defenses, We've been given spiritual weapons. And now the calling of God is use them. And so let's consider tonight the instruction of this text under the theme, putting on God's armor. First, we'll consider the enemy faced, focusing especially on verses 11 and 12. Second, then the needed protection. And then third, the strength given. Who is this enemy that we who are members of the church face? Who's your enemy? This must be the starting point here before we consider what weapons we are to use and what armor is to be ours. This is a crucially important question, determining who is the enemy. Any general in the Department of Defense of a nation understands the importance of being able to identify clearly who is your enemy. In fact, if you look at some of the recent history of even the United States of America and the warfare that we have been involved in, a big part of the reason for the struggles that we have had as a nation from a military perspective is because of difficulties in determining who is the enemy. If we cannot identify who the enemy is, then we will not be successful in fighting against him. 
Further, it's important that we be able to understand who the enemy is because there can be dire consequences if we begin to fight against the wrong individual. If we do not have clear in our mind's eye who the enemy is, but we take out our sword anyways and we start swinging the sword around, then there is the good possibility that instead of the enemy being attacked by, being, being fought against by the members of the church, that instead we turn and we fight against an innocent person. This happens so frequently, does it not, even within the membership of the church? Someone becomes convinced that there's this battle that needs to get fought, that that there's some problem in the church. And so this individual with lots of zeal and lots of energy takes out the sword and they're ready to use that sword and they let loose with this verbal assault on another member of the church all the while missing who the real enemy is. And then there's needless hurt because we've misidentified the enemy. How important is it to know who he is? Important not only from the perspective of protecting innocent members from hurt, but important also from this perspective if, if according to Galatians 5, the members of the church bite and devour one another, then what happens to the real threat? What happens to the real enemy? He goes off free, unscathed, untouched. That's one of the primary means that the devil uses to protect himself. If he can get the members of the church to fight against one another, then they won't have the energy or ability to fight against him. So he goes off doing what He wants to do. How important it is that we be able to identify the enemy. The enemy is not, according to verse 12, flesh and blood. For we wrestle not, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, against flesh and blood. Blood. And the point that Paul, the Apostle Paul makes here is that we are not fighting against a physical enemy. We do not fight against an enemy that mere earthly and physical senses are able to locate. Earthly eyes cannot see this enemy. Earthly ears cannot hear this enemy. Earthly hands cannot reach out and grab a hold of this enemy. If we would rely exclusively upon our physical senses to try to locate this enemy, 
we never would be able to find Him. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so we must be so very careful then that we do not misunderstand trials and tribulations that come upon us on this earth. We must not interpret the trials of the flesh as being the same thing as the attack of the enemy. It could very well be that the enemy is going to use the trials of the flesh as an occasion to attack God's child. But the trial of the flesh itself, the sickness, the affliction, the cancer, the injury, that itself is not the enemy. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. In addition, that it is not a bodily struggle means that we are not fighting against other physical people. This is something that we must keep in mind, especially when we are the ones hurt by the words and actions of others. They're not my enemy. I'm not going to retaliate physically against them. Kelvin writes, John Kelvin writes beautifully here, quote, Let us remember this, this being the truth that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let us remember this when the injurious treatment of others provokes us to revenge. Our natural disposition would lead us to direct all our exertions against the men themselves. But this foolish desire must be restrained by the consideration that the men who annoy us are nothing more than darts thrown by the hand of Satan. While we are employed in destroying those darts, we lay ourselves open to be wounded on all sides. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But who then positively is the enemy? The enemy must be, according to this text, understood spiritually. Ephesians 6, verse 11, "...put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil." And who is the devil but a fallen angel? That is the enemy against whom we fight. And then Paul goes on in verse 12 to list out a number of descriptors of this spiritual enemy. Paul, as it were, is parading before the audience the power and the resources that the devil has at his disposal. 
And so hear with me how this, this enemy, the devil, is described. We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The enemy is described here vividly by the Apostle, not so that we might be overcome with fear and with anxiety, but so that we might be excited unto a greater resolve both to identify and to fight against this enemy as he rears his ugly head in our lives. The devil here is described as principalities and powers. And those two words together both speak of the authority that the devil has. The devil has a measure of authority, power given unto him. And remarkably, the devil receives that power from God Himself. Think of Job and the interactions of the devil with God before the devil went and tempted Job. The devil had to go into the presence of God Himself and ask God for permission to afflict this righteous man named Job. And so it is then that the devil, or rather God grants unto the devil a measure of authority and power. And that's exactly why the temptations of the devil are so enticing. Because He comes to you with authority and with power. That's what He did in the beginning to Adam and Eve when He came and He tempted them in the garden. Take, eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and here's the power that will be given unto you. You can be as gods knowing good and evil. That's why it's enticing. If the devil had no power given unto him, if he had no authority given to him, then these temptations would be so much easier for us to resist. But it's because the devil is one as principalities and powers that he comes to us and it's so hard to resist those temptations. He says to the young person, drink. It's okay. You can drink a little bit on the weekend. And a little bit more. And a little bit more. Drink, it will make you happy. He says to the professing member of the church, complain. Grumble. You may gossip. It will give you a sense of satisfaction. He says to the individual prone to anger, hold on to that grudge. Hold on to that bitterness. Someday you will show him and you'll make him pay for what he did. There's power in the temptations that the devil sets before us.
This shows as well the goal of the devil, does it not? Principalities and powers. That's what he wants to do. He wants to rule over you. That's his objective. He would have you submit to him. He would have you call him Lord. He would have you accomplish his will. He will portray himself as someone who cares about you, as someone who really wants what is best for you. And he will set forth the temptations before you as an escape from the unyielding demands of Jehovah God. Come, have fun, the devil would say. And then the devil is described as the ruler of the darkness of this world. We wrestle, verse 12, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We could alternatively translate this as against an earthly tyrant of this darkness. An earthly tyrant of of this darkness. That shows us something here of the character of the devil against whom we fight. He is a man who has power given unto him, but what does he do with that power? Does he use that power for the good of God's children? No, the devil abuses that power. He exerts strength and hardness upon his subjects, and thus he is an earthly tyrant. He's an earthly tyrant of darkness. The devil doesn't play fair. The devil doesn't come out when it's light time. The devil doesn't come work on you and tempt you, tempt you, tempt you when you're at the peak of the mountaintop. But the devil waits until the darkness The devil knows when you're feeling tired, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're inclined to feel sorry for yourself because of all that you've been going through. And it's at that time that the devil comes and he tempts you to fall into this or that sin. He is an evil tyrant of darkness. Darkness throughout the Word of God, stands opposed to light. Light is purity. God is light. And there is no darkness in Him at all. Darkness is that which is immoral. is that which is base and that which is corrupt. Darkness describes not only the character of the enemy against whom we fight, that he is a dark and evil individual, But darkness describes further where the devil would bring you. Where he would drag you. It's not as if the devil is content having darkness coexist by the light. The devil is not content with letting there be pockets of darkness on this earth and pockets of light on this earth. 
But the devil seeks to extinguish the light and to drag the people of God into the darkness. The evil tyrant of darkness. And then, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's the enemy whom we fight. We translate it this way, spiritual wicked, spiritual beings in high places. The point being, the devil is alive. He's a being. He's alert. He knows what's going on. The devil has his plan. The end of verse 11 speaks of that plan, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Not a very common word. Any more wiles. It literally means the method or the strategies of the devil. The devil has a specific strategy that he employs to try to take God's children and draw them into the darkness. The devil has his plan in place, but the devil is alert. He's he's alive. He's a spiritual being in high places. And thus, as someone who is alive, he can respond to certain situations and he can change his strategy with whatever best accomplishes his purposes. And so if he has sent a number of his demons to this area or to this individual to focus all their powers on that individual, but then he notices that there's another area of weakness, another vulnerability within the church, the devil then changes his strategy, his wiles, and he sends the demons from this location to a different location. And he's able to watch what's going on because he is in high places. He has a vantage point where he can look down upon the church and upon the members of the church and can see what they are going through. He has access to information that you and I don't have access unto. And so from that high vantage point as a war general, as it were, who is hovering above the battlefield, the devil can send his demons to wherever the church is at her weakest. Spiritual wickedness in high places. This is the enemy that you and I must fight against. But who could stand against such an enemy? What all of the description of the devil given to us in verse 12 makes abundantly clear is that we are fighting against an enemy that is far superior to us in strength, in experience, in resources, 
and in knowledge. Would that we were merely fighting against flesh and blood. It would be easier to be involved in a battle against flesh and blood. Then at least the playing field is somewhat equal. Then it's human against human, will against will, flesh against flesh, sword against sword. But we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting the devil. Principalities, powers, tyrants, spiritual wickedness, and high places. So we cannot stand up against Him of ourselves. We depend upon the Lord's protection. We need the Lord's protection for against this enemy we fight. We're called to fight. Verse 12 says, describes the fighting with this word. We wrestle. We wrestle. Not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, powers, and so on. Wrestling. This is a term that would have been familiar to the Greeks and the Romans of the day of the Apostle Paul, for it was the fevered competitive sport of that day. Wrestling, two men who are grappling in hand-to-hand combat against one another, seeking to exercise dominance and control over the other individual. The objective of competitive wrestling was and is to lay the opponent on their back. To, to demonstrate so much that you have such a great measure of control over this individual that there they lay helpless on their back. But the goal here, the objective of the wrestling described by the Apostle Paul is not simply for competition, not, not merely for entertainment, entertainment's sake, But the goal of this wrestling is completely to overwhelm and even destroy the enemy. There's only going to be one side left standing at the end of this battle. Stand, that's a word used repeatedly here. Verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. There's going to be one side left standing after this wrestling, this grappling, hand-to-hand combat is finished. It will either be the devil and his hosts who are standing, or Jesus and His church who are Standing. That this warfare is described as wrestling shows how close and how personal this warfare is. We wrestle against Him. 
We're not commanded to pick up a bow, an arrow, and draw that arrow back and release it and shoot him many yards away. It's not the same type of warfare that characterizes so much of modern warfare with the push of a button, a soldier. He can send out a guided missile that goes many, many miles away and strikes the target. But he has no idea who is impacted personally by that guided missile. That's not the idea here of this Christian warfare. It's wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. The devil is here, right in this holy sanctuary. Where is he? He's in our hearts, our fallen, corrupt hearts. That's how close and how personal this battle is against the devil. It's a warfare that happens right in my soul as the new man of Jesus Christ wrestles, grapples against that old man of sin. Nobody may excuse himself from this wrestling. Children, when you are tempted to use your mouth to mock the classmate or the sibling, you are called to wrestle against that sinful desire and say, no, I'm not going to mock. How strenuous this warfare is of all of the competitive sport on this earth, wrestling is one of the most physically strenuous, if not the most difficult. It requires every fiber of one's being to be involved in striving against the opponent. We mustn't go into this battle naive, thinking that it's going to be a quick and painless battle. But if we wrestle every day, every hour, and every moment of every day, we'll be left at the end of that day exhausted for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we need, do we not, the armor of God to protect us and to give us strength and resolve to go into this battle against the devil. Verse 11 and verse 13 both speak of this command to put on the armor of God. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And 13 repeats that truth. Wherefore, Take unto you the whole armor of God, 
that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Armor. This is a word taken straight from the battlefield. Armor. It's a word that is so fresh from the battlefield that it still has with on it the smell of sweat and the stains of blood upon it. Armor. It is the protection that is given unto the soldier before he goes into battle so that when he experiences contact, has contact with the enemy, he might be defended against the attack of the enemy. The soldier must be covered as much as possible. Verse 13 says that we are to take the whole armor of God. It's imperative that there not be any areas of weakness in the armor of the soldier as he goes out into battlefield. Recall Ahab, King Ahab. He had armor on. He had protection. He had that breastplate on. But the Word of God tells us that a soldier pulled back his arrow, let it go at random, and that arrow was guided, and it went right in the joint between the breastplate and the rest of his armor and he bled to death. How necessary it is that we take on the whole armor of God. Any places where there is a gap in the armor, the devil will look for it. Any place that there is a breach in the wall, Surrounding the church. The devil will look for it. This is God's armor that we need. Take unto you the whole armor of God. There's other types of armor available. You can get armor that the world provides. They have lots of defenses that they'll give you. Pay them for it. They'll be, they'll be glad to give it to you if you pay them. You can give them armor that will def- give you armor that would defend you or protect you financially. You can get insurance, health insurance, vehicle Insurance, home or renter's insurance, and that insurance, the world says, will protect you, give you peace of mind. You can sleep at night, not being worried or anxious because you have this armor, this defense in place. There's armor that's intended physically to protect your home. You can put up walls, you can put up gates, you can install security cameras. You can do all these things to give you some measure of armor to protect your home. And although these forms of protection may well have a place in the life of the Christian, 
these earthly forms of protection do nothing to shield us against the wiles, the strategies of the devil. The armor that we need is the armor that comes from God Himself. Take, beloved Christians, this armor from God. Take unto you, the command is, the whole armor of God. The same words translated in verse 11 as put on, put on the whole armor of God are the words that are translated elsewhere in Scripture as get dressed. There's a a similarity here between an individual getting dressed at the start of the day and an individual putting on or taking this armor of God. Just as frequently as you get dressed, so frequently the child of God ought to be on his knees pleading with God for God to give him this armor. Just as you wouldn't consider going out of your home naked, exposed for the whole world to see you, so, beloved, we ought not even to consider standing up against the devil exposed without the armor of God to protect us. And just as you deliberately put on clothing that is appropriate for the work and calling that you have that day, so it is that we deliberately pray for the protection that we are going to need on this particular day. Take, put on the whole armor of God and trust that God will give you strength. Verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. How great is the strength of the Lord and the power of His might. We saw this morning the revelation of the power of God as He created the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. Now this evening again, the Spirit calls our attention unto the power and the might of God. We see the strength of God revealed most especially at the cross of Jesus Christ. It was there at the cross that Almighty God stood face to face with the enemy. God in flesh encountered the enemy because God sought out the enemy. God did not hide away from the enemy. God did not cower in the face in the day of adversity, but God sought out the enemy. God came to the enemy by sending His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this 
world. And there God's Son stood toe-to-toe with the devil in combat. It was a battle of light against darkness. It was a battle foretold by the prophets of old. It was a battle that God Himself told Adam and Eve about in Genesis 3, verse 15, that there would come the seed of the woman who would bruise, literally crush, the seed of the serpent. It was a battle of the seed of the woman then against the seed of the serpent. It was the battle of the lion of the tribe of Judah against the prince of this world. It was the most important battle that this earth has ever had. A battle that would have consequences for the whole human race as well for the souls of those saints who had already gone into heaven. And there at the cross, God in flesh wrestled, grappled in hand-to-hand combat against the devil. The one attempting to steal the Father's kingdom, the other defending the children of the Father. The battle was so great that it took every fiber of strength within Jesus Christ to stand up against the wiles of the devil. A battle so severe that it required of Jesus Christ that He lay down His own life. The heel of the seed of the woman was bruised, but the head of the seed of the serpent was crushed. That's the power. That's the might of God. In the Lord's might, we are made strong. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Be strong, the text says. Would you dare to describe yourself that way? strong and powerful. I can resist temptations. We would hardly dare even to say the words, would we? I'm strong in the Lord. Some would say, I've, I've learned better. I've, I've faced so many hardships and so many difficulties In life, I've been disappointed so many times in the past that I've learned better than to get my hopes up. Dare hope for strength 
to be given me. No, I've, I've lowered my expectations so that my hopes don't get crushed and hurt again. Would you dare say that you are strong? That's the calling of this 10th verse. God does not say here, be satisfied with mediocrity, mediocrity in the Lord, but be strong. He does not say, limp along as a Christian, but be strong. You know as well as I that the only way that we can be strong is when we are in the Lord. Apart from the Lord, there is no strength. Apart from the Lord, as we stood up against the enemy, we would be consumed in a moment. But it's only in communion with the Lord that we are made strong. In the Lord. What is that? How is it possible for us to be in the Lord? It's faith, beloved. Faith places you in a living union and relationship with God. Faith, which is the victory that overcometh the world. Faith, which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, which is the God-ordained instrument by which God fills you with His own strength so that you can be strong in the Lord. Take, beloved, the whole armor of God, which we will look at in the weeks ahead, and be strong in the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, will Thou help us as fathers, as mothers, as young people, as children, and as single persons to be able to identify the devil. To be able to see how he comes with cunning to try to find a gap in our armor. Father, wilt Thou give unto us graciously the whole armor that we need. Fill us with Thy strength from on high. Forgive us our sins. For Jesus' sake, Amen.